Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is Jordan Embry, and I am the, the church plant pastor here at Bethany Community Church. If you are new or visiting with us this morning, welcome. Thank you for being with us. I am uh, not the pastor who normally does the majority of our preaching here, but it is my joy to, to fill in for Pastor Daniel this morning. Go ahead and, and grab your Bibles that you've hopefully brought with you this Lord's Day and open up to the book of 2 Corinthians, the second letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Our text for this morning is going to be chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. But I'm going to start reading in, uh, starting in chapter 3, verse 1, and I'll read through 4, verse 6. This will give us a, a better context to what the, the author Paul here is communicating. These, uh, the verses and, and chapter divisions, of course, are, are not divinely inspired. They're there to, to aid us, and we're, we're thankful for them, right? Otherwise, we'd probably still be looking for what portion of this letter I wanted to read this morning. Uh, but sometimes they, they can be choppy and, and sort of break up the, the flow of text. So that's just something important to remember as, as we're reading God's Word. And so please stand with me now, if you are able, out of respect for God as He speaks to us through His Word this morning. This is what the Lord says to us, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of, on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what was once had glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed." The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is 
the Spirit. In our text for this morning, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The grass fades, the flower withers, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. You may be seated. The title of this sermon is Light Wielding Slaves. Light-wielding slaves, as opposed to the the stories we see in the news of gun-wielding thieves, knife-wielding thieves, the type of wielding we are going to be challenged with this morning, we are framing in the positive. And so for those of you taking notes, here is the main idea this morning. I'm going to give this to you at the beginning, as well as the outline that we are going to operate under. The main idea is this, by God's mercy and grace... Christians are called to be light-wielding slaves in the different spheres of influence God places them in. By God's mercy and grace, Christians are called to be light-wielding slaves in the different spheres of influence God places them in. And here's the outline we're going to operate under. We're going to look at the the methods, the message, and the mission of a light-wielding slave. Verses 1 through 4 are the methods of a light-wielding slave. Verse 5 is the message of a light-wielding slave. And verse 6 is the mission of a light-wielding slave. And we're going to deal with these rather uniquely in reverse order this morning. So we're going to start with the mission of a light-wielding slave in verse 6, then move to verse 5, then move to verses 1 through 4. So starting first with the mission of a light-wielding slave, verse 6 again reads like this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying a lot here in verse 6. And here is the first thing worth noting. He starts by bringing his readers back to the very beginning, doesn't he? In a manner of speaking, he illustrates who God is, by drawing their minds back to something that they are very knowledgeable of. Now, the the, the Corinthian church was a mix of both Jew and Gentile, probably more Gentiles than Jews. But the Jews in the church definitely knew their Torah. They knew the books of Moses. They knew the, the first five books of the Bible in and out. But the Gentiles as well, among them, as, as Paul and others are, are preaching and teaching them, We see Paul teaching through some of the tenets of the life of Israel in the Old Covenant in chapter 3, leading up to our text this morning. 
And so, so when he makes this statement, let light shine out of darkness, it, it snaps their minds back to the garden. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, read like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. The triune God of the universe, who is before all things, who wasn't created but is eternal in his essence, in his infinite power, in his infinite might, in his glory and supremacy that is beyond measure, simply speaks and the light is formed. Now God didn't have to muster up all of his power and really concentrate in order to focus and devote all of his energy to such a terribly difficult endeavor. No, he just simply speaks. Now he didn't literally speak or actually speak. God is spirit, has no mouth to speak from. But by Moses recording that he spoke, part of what he's communicating is just how easy, we might say, even that word falls short, it is for God to create light. As simple as it is for you to, to just say a, a single word, we, we speak without even having to think about it. I'm sure my parents, especially in my teenage years, would attest to such a reality. When you walk into your house at night and, and it's dark and you want to provide light, it's the simple action of flipping on the switch and your house is lit up. It is even more simple for God to provide light to the entire created order. In the book of Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light. James tells us in the New Testament that God is the father of lights. In other words, light proceeds from him. He is the author. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Do we sense the magnitude of the words we are reading? Do you sense the magnitudes of the words you are hearing this morning? God said, let there be light, and there was light. Do you feel that? Does that grip the, the inner parts of your being? D don't be tempted to just gloss over this reality because it's conceptually difficult to understand and comprehend. W what does that difficulty do? Or at least what should it do? It should create fear. It, sh it should drive us towards awe and reverence that ultimately leads to worship. God spoke and there was light. Paul goes on. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, this God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as God was sovereign, in control, governing the emptiness and void and darkness before the world began, and bringing forth light to the entire created order with his proverbial voice in the same way, if you are a Christian here this morning, this good and all-wise God has shined the light in your own heart. There was darkness, 
And in God's infinite mercy, in his boundless grace, in his loving kindness to you, brethren, he looked over that darkness of your heart and said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the doctrine that many have called regeneration. This effectual calling of God, where in essence he speaks and the lights come on in our hearts and souls and minds. Listen to the second London Baptist Confession of Faith here, chapter 10, paragraph 1. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of the state of sin and death, we might say darkness, out of darkness in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. If you're a Christian here this morning, you came freely. You irresistibly chose to come to Jesus because the grace of God made you willing. You came to Jesus because God said, let there be light, and there was light. But what is this light? What exactly was shown to us? Precisely what did God reveal? What was so exceptional and unique about what was exposed to us? To use the language of chapter 3, what was unveiled? What was this light that was shown to us? Paul says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light. The light of what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of the glory of God. The knowledge of the glory of God. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the greatest problem that exists today. He said that 60-some years ago, but I believe it remains true today. I always will until the Lord returns. Everyone's biggest problem. The reason so much evil is going on in the world the reason every single sin is ever committed, the very reason for all the gender identity issues, the, the cause of political unrest, the, the root of every war. Why? What's the big problem? Ignorance. There's ignorance. There is ignorance of the glory of God. The, the, the reason the light was shown in our hearts is to give us the knowledge of the glory of God. God has made everything for its purpose, Proverbs 16, 4 tells us. And what is that purpose, Romans 11? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. God is glorious. It, it, it is what he is. His very nature and essence is glory. All of his attributes are glorious. A glorious love, a glorious mercy, a glorious grace. And glory, when it is manifested to us, is the display of these perfections. The glory of God was the very reason you were created, right? 
What is the chief end of mankind? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us. Psalm 86, 9, all nations shall glorify my name. Revelation 4, 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Paul tells these people, um, these same people in his first letter, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We were created and saved by God's grace, and we were created and saved for God's glory. Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. If people actually believed this, if there was an an awareness and an acknowledgement of this reality manifested in our lives, all of the problems of the world would go away. It's all traced back to ignorance of the glory of God. It's the very reason Adam and Eve fell from their original righteousness and us and them. They rebelled against the knowledge they had of the glory of God and didn't trust it. There was a desire to be like God, to have the glory for themselves. But there is only one worthy, only one sung to glory to God in the highest. Paul then tells this church, these people whom he cherishes, and is very connected to, where the glory of God is chiefly found, that being in the face of Jesus Christ. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 14, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the radiance of God's glory. Hebrews chapter 1, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Brethren, the the manifestation of God's glory is seen most clearly in the person and work of God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood 
of his cross. The manifestation of God's glory is seen most clearly in the person and work of God's only begotten Son, the second person of the Trinity, the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men, the one who humbled himself, the one who took on flesh to live the life that we were created to live, a life that glorified God, that was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one that died the death that we deserved to die, but didn't. The God-man, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is where the glory of God is chiefly on display. And this has been God's plan all along. Before the foundations of the world were laid, to make much of the Son. This is the mission of God, the mission of the light being shown in your own heart, is to make much of the Son. And now, brothers and sisters, this is our mission, to make much of the Son. You display this glory. You reflect the image of God. You carry with you as a regenerated Christian the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And by God's mercy and grace, we are called to wield this life, light to those in our past so that they too might see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Moving up then to verse 5, the message of a light-wielding slave. Verse 5 again. For what we proclaim, in other words, our message, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul is, is very quick to point out that Jesus is the very content of the gospel. And those who are sent out to herald the gospel, which is each and every one of us if we claim the name of Christ, as we are preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel, what we proclaim is Jesus. God is the gospel. It is all about Jesus. Him we proclaim, right? Colossians 1.28, the very verse that our mission statement is taken from here at Bethany Community Church. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Jesus is the very content. He is the substance. He is what we proclaim to the lost and dying world around us. What we proclaim is not ourselves, Paul is telling them, not ourselves, but Christ. You see, there's something happening in the culture, in the context that Paul is ministering in. And that was people were beginning to be confused and not rightly giving the honor where it was solely due. We saw that in, in the first letter to the Corinthian church. Some follow Paul, some follow Apollos. You know, where ought our attention be placed? And we can understand what is going on here because it is really no different in our day today. It's probably even worse. There's this thing in the evangelical world, the, the culture of celebrity pastors. Pastors, usually of, of big and successful churches by the world's standards, are high and lifted up and praised to some incredibly sad levels. And I think that is part of what Paul has in mind here. We don't preach ourselves. It is Christ we proclaim. 
And this happens even in the Reformed world. It's probably appropriate to, to shoot some darts at our own camp for a minute, maybe. Calvinists, we don't proclaim John Calvin. We pro- proclaim Christ. It, it, it's so easy and, and luring to get sucked into idol worship, isn't it? Are we not so incredibly prone to magnify and make much of anything or anyone other than Christ? Darkness is our nature and we need the light. To the point that really good things in life, really good even theologians and pastors of yesterday and today are put on a pedestal where only Christ belongs, brethren. Don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't study theology. I think I would be one of the first in the room to encourage you to do so. Matter of fact, I'll I'll encourage you now. Everyone in the room needs to read more John Calvin. Have you been through the Institutes of the Christian Religion? It's it's a drudge. I've been through it twice. It was a drudge for me both times, but man, it is worth it. And so so don't hear me say that we need to avoid the, the fruit of a man's labor. The fruit of Calvin's labor is Christ. That's why it's so good. Because it magnifies and makes much of Christ. And so we praise the fruit of the labor, but not the laborer himself. We call ourselves, or I guess I I should speak for myself, I I don't know everyone's motivation, but I personally, unashamedly, call myself a Calvinist. But not because John Calvin systemized a set of beliefs but because I believe the beliefs that he organized are faithful to what the Bible teaches. And and it gives a a category in conversation so people know what I'm referring to. It's helpful. If I just say I I believe the Bible, well, even Jehovah's Witnesses claim to believe the Bible. That could mean anything. And so it is the fruit of the labor of John Calvin that we appreciate because it is a fruit that magnifies Christ. But John Calvin, John MacArthur, John Piper, not sure why all the good ones are named John. I could go on, John Owen, John Knox. John Piper and John MacArthur and John Calvin make terrible gods. But praise and honor and glory is reserved for one man the God-man, Christ Jesus. It is him we proclaim, not ourselves. I, uh, I really appreciate the quote from Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf was a Moravian missionary from the 1700s, and he said this, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I think this is, a part, in part, what Paul is getting at here. Christ is who we proclaim. When we die, we want Christ to be remembered, not us. Who, who remembers the slave? We, we are servants for Jesus, right? The Greek word for, for servant in the text is, is doulos, literally translated slave, referring to someone who is the property of another. Paul often refers to himself as a, as a slave to Christ Jesus. He says in Galatians 1, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I was trying to please man, I would not be a doulos, a slave, a servant, a bondservant of Christ. 
So I personally tend to agree with the Moravian that we should preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now this quote did uh, resurface recently. It was kind of uh, making its way around the interwebs. And some people from the Gospel Coalition wrote a rebuttal article entitled, Preach the Gospel, Die, and Be Remembered. And if I'm being charitable, which we obviously always should be, then I can admit I, I understand some of the author's counterpoints. Some of his arguments are valid. And so if you are more sympathetic to, to that position, that's okay. I encourage you, if you haven't heard it or read it, to, to look it up. It's an interesting concept to, to think through, really. But nonetheless, however we view Zinzendorf's quote, Paul's quote in here in verse 5 is obviously better. It's the inherent word of God. And he says, we are slaves who wield Christ. Christ is the light we wield, not ourselves. The message of a light-wielding slave is Christ. It is him we proclaim. Which brings us then to the methods of a light-wielding slave. We've seen the mission of a light-wielding slave. We've seen the message from verse 5. Let us now turn our attention to verses 1 through 4 and the method of a light-wielding slave. Verses 1 through 4 again read like this. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Not only does Paul highlight the mission and the message, but he makes it pretty clear from verses 1 through 4 what our methodology ought to be as well. Answering the, the question for us, what practices, what process, what, what techniques might we deploy as we wield this light to the people that God has placed in our spheres of influence? Are we left to our own desires, our own devices? Or in God's infinite wisdom and plan, is our methodology also governed by Holy Scripture? And the answer from Paul is, is pretty clear in the text. First, he draws their attention to the ministry itself. Let, let, let's be clear, Paul says, in a manner of speaking, just what exactly we are talking about. What, what ministry I am referring to. It is the ministry given by the mercy of God. The ministry of the gospel. What, what Paul is doing here is highlighting a distinction between the law and the gospel. This was huge for Paul. And this should be huge for you and for me. The law condemns. The old covenant condemns. But the gospel gives life. The new covenant gives life. And so we must make this distinction. What we are calling people towards is faith in Christ Jesus. And this is gospel. This is not law. For instance, look back at verse 5 from chapter 3. It reads like this. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. 
not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Do you see the distinction here between law and gospel? Essentially, in other words, the law kills, but the gospel is what brings life. And this is the ministry, the ministry of the gospel that is given to us by the mercy of God. We don't call people to obey this command and obey that command in order to earn favor with God. We call people to faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel, which is distinguished from the law. Commandment keeping doesn't get you to Jesus. You come to Jesus by grace, through faith alone. And then what that faith does is produce commandment keeping in us. This is what Paul is saying in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. We are free in Christ And what that freedom in Christ produces as we're being enabled more and more to be obedient to him is sanctification. As we're being transformed, as the text says, from one degree of glory to another. And so we are saved for good works, not by good works. Something Paul, almost in passing, seems to make clear. Then he goes on the text in the next few verses to provide the appropriate methodology. The appropriate methods these ministers ought to be deploying, which are the appropriate methods that we ought to be deploying as light-wielding slaves. Paul says in verse 2, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. We refuse to practice cunning, he says. Practice can also be translated walk in. Cunning can also be translated craftiness, and I think that's probably a a better way to translate it. We refuse to walk in craftiness. And so in order to understand what manner the Apostle Paul is referring to, what, what manner he's refusing to minister in, we have to understand what walking in craftiness might look like. What is it that Paul is so diligently seeking to avoid? Pastor, theologian, John Gill, yep, another John, describes this method as sly and artful in order to please men and gain applause from them. In other words, apparently there were teachers in the day who would, who would gimmick up their content. They would add the, the lights and the sirens and the bells and the whistles of the day in order to make their message attractive in order to make it palatable and pleasure, pleasurable, in order to, to make it catchier and more appealing. This isn't still happening in our day, is it? Unfortunately, this methodology is still quite rampant. And Paul calls it disgraceful. Rather than, what does the text call us to? What is the core of our methodology? We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The open statement of the truth. Clear, straightforward, undoctored, forthright gospel preaching. The gospel doesn't need to be dressed up. It can't be dressed up. If you try to dress it up, Paul calls that 
tampering. A dressed up gospel is no gospel at all. Rather, we are called to give clear, open statements of truth. Clear gospel teaching and preaching is our methodology as light-wielding slaves. The next thing worth considering under this heading is who our audience is. If our main idea is, by God's mercy and grace, Christians are called to be light-wielding slaves in the different spheres of influence that God places us in, We're called to be light, gospel-centric preachers, clear and straightforward, open statements of biblical truth to folks that are perishing. Lost people are in desperate need of the gospel. Lost people need to be reconciled back to the God of the universe. Lost people need the righteousness of the sinless Savior imputed to them. Lost people need the guilt of their sins laid upon Christ. Lost people's minds are blinded by the God of this world, Satan and his army, the text says. And it's these lost people that need to see the light. They need Jesus Christ. Non-Christians, unbelievers are who we wield the light of the gospel to. And so might I ask you this morning, who are they? Who are they? Who has God placed in your path? I'm confident there are many spheres that you're currently in. Some varying degrees of influence in them, I suppose. So maybe spheres to influence is a better way to put it than spheres of influence. But regardless, this is our mission. Who is God placing in your path? Your coworkers, your neighbor, the lady at Kroger. The guy at the gym, you have never talked to a mere mortal, C.S. Lewis said. Think about that. Everyone you encounter is either headed towards everlasting joy or everlasting torment. Life doesn't just end. We deny the doctrine of annihilationism. The folks in your sphere don't just get annihilated and vanish into nothingness upon their death. They will spend eternity with Christ in pure joy or experience suffering and torment that is both conscious and everlasting. That's the reality of the people that you will encounter. And we wield the light. We can either choose to hide our light or wield it with boldness. Non-Christians, unbelievers, are who we wield the light of the gospel to. But we don't stop there, do we? Because unbelievers are not the only ones in need of the gospel. Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians. To phrase it using theological language, that the gospel is for our justification, our right standing before God, and our sanctification us being transformed into his image. It's the same gospel that produces both. Paul says in Romans 1, he writes the letter to the church that is in Rome. In other words, he's writing to believers. A few verses later, he said he's eager to preach the gospel to them. Paul was eager to preach the gospel to a group of Christians. Why? Well, because he realized the gospel was for their sanctification. 
The gospel is the good news that both justifies a sinner and sanctifies a saint. And this is precisely what Paul is saying in our text, chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, he's talking about believers there, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is exactly what sanctification is. Being transformed more and more into the image of God. And so the gospel is for the Christian just as much as it is for the non-Christian. So whether believer or unbeliever, the mission doesn't change, the message doesn't change, nor do the methods. So I ask you again, who are they? Look to your right. Look to your left. Who in this room is God calling you to minister the gospel to? This is a question we should be asking of ourselves regularly, especially on the Lord's Day as we gather together as a corporate body, as you park your car and you walk in these doors. I encourage you to be praying, God, as your servant, who are you calling me to wield this light to this morning? I want to close this morning by talking about our responsibility as it pertains to this text. Paul says in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And this faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. People come to saving faith through the preaching of the gospel and people are sanctified in the faith by the preaching of the gospel. But how will they believe in Christ or be sanctified in Christ if they never hear the gospel? And how will they hear the gospel without someone preaching? These are questions Paul asks in Romans 10. And so we absolutely have responsibility to wield the light. We are slaves of Christ in this endeavor. And we will give an account one day to how faithful we were carrying the light of the gospel into the different spheres of influence that God has placed us in. But our responsibility, our responsibility lies in the pressing of the truth upon people's conscience proclaiming the plain and unaltered truths of Jesus Christ and him crucified. But one thing to make abundantly clear, how folks respond to the light of the gospel is not a responsibility that is laid upon our shoulders. In other words, we are not held accountable for whether or not the light that we wield is effective and actually brings the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We don't breathe life. We don't flip on the proverbial lights of souls. This is an area in which we do not exercise any sort of sovereignty. Here's how Paul words it in his first letter again to this church, chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Brethren, we are not sovereign over the fruit. We don't control whether or not the seeds that we throw will spring up to produce life. We're not in control of the effect the light that we wield may or may not have. And there are seemingly endless applications here. But pastorally, there is one in particular I want to zero in on this morning. Parents in this room, especially those of you who have children who are currently in rebellion, 
not walking with the Lord who may be backsliding or rejecting the faith altogether. I want to encourage you this morning. You are not responsible for your child's rebellion. If you have been faithful to wield the gospel, the light of the gospel in their lives, then I beg you to release yourself from the unhealthy burden that you have placed yourself under. You might not be perfect. There might be many areas in which you need to repent and have failed as a parent. But brother or sister, God gives growth, not you. Please take comfort in that reality. Allow that reality to drive you to your knees for your children. Allow that reality to motivate you to wield the light like never before. But please do not bear a paralyzing burden that wasn't meant for you to bear. Let Christ bear that burden. Fruit is never promised. But we serve a good God, a wise God, a just God, a loving God, God loves your children more and better than you do. Brethren, might we all continue by his mercy and grace to be faithful as light-wielding slaves to the different spheres that he calls us to. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your character and nature and essence is gloriously pure. You are holy, holy, holy and cannot be in the presence of sin. You created us to glorify you, to live in joyful obedience to you in all of our ways, and yet we sinned. We have sinned and fallen short of your glory. And the wages of our sin against you is death. But the free gift your free gift is eternal life. You sent your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh, to live a life of sinlessness, a life of complete moral purity, not a blemish, in order to obtain righteousness on our behalf, to live the life that was pleasing to you that we were supposed to live and die the death that we should have died, absorbing your wrath that was headed for us. Your son died the sinner's death, was buried three days later, rose victorious over sin and death. And if we turn from our sin and repentance and trust in Christ through faith, if we believe, we'll be reconciled back to you, the triune God of the universe. Father, if there is anyone in my hearing who does not know you, who doesn't have faith in Christ Jesus, might you open their eyes to see the light. Shine in their heart the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.